we do have a long way to go to get all of the people registered of voting aid. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We will turn out to vote this cycle because we all understand what's at stake. Let's head to Arizona where Republicans are recounting two million ballots by hand. Hello and welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote. We aim to make sense out of election administration news during this volatile period from debunking to conspiracy theories to demystifying the election process to general explaining the why and the how of elections. I'm Royfield Brown, an American in training, and it's my job to bring you a brisk and brief overview of election administration news from around the nation. Today, we're speaking to Gregory Miller of OSET about election news and its significance for America and its democracy. From the Democracy Docket, Texas Online Registration, Vote.org, V. Callinan. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals scheduled an oral argument in a lawsuit against Texas's wet signature law for March the 6th. The law requires people who submit a voter registration form electronically or via tax to also send a pen on paper version of their signature. Greg, what's your take on this? You can't see me shaking my head over this. So Vote.org is an organization that, uh, of course, is about get out the vote. And they brought the lawsuit about the state's wet signature law that requires individuals who submit their registration applications electronically or through fax to also provide a copy of their application with his or her original signature, meaning signed with pen on paper. Now, the complaint argued that this law unduly burdens the right to vote and targets voting advocacy groups such as Vote.org in violation of the First and Fourteenth Amendments and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and they asked the court to prohibit the enforcement. The Texas Attorney General, G. Paxton, and two counties, and of course, can I remember, I think it's Medina and Real uh, counties, they filed motions to intervene in that case. And the court granted Vote.org's motion for summary judgment and said, hey, We're going to grant a permanent injunction blocking the wedding signature law, basically saying that the state may not require a voter registrant who submits a voter registration form by digital means to also provide a copy of the original registration application containing the voter's original signature. So that decision was appealed to the Fifth Circuit. And now this news, this newsworthiness, because the Fifth Circuit granted the appellant's emergency motion to pause the lower court's injunction pending this appeal thereby reinstating this wet signature law. And as you mentioned, the oral arguments are due up here in early March. The bottom line here is that we, it appears to be yet another hurdle to make it more difficult for people to register to vote. The fact is, and we do a lot of this work with Rock the Vote with the, the Rocky platform that we build and maintain for them, they have the ability to submit a full digital application with a signature that's been digitally recreated. And the theory is that they can go look these things up in Department of Motor Vehicles and elsewhere, just like they would look up your signature on an envelope before they, that's called attestation, before they agreed to count the ballot inside of that envelope. Here, to have the wet ink on the sig- signature on the piece of paper physically brought to them seems to be an undue burden. The complaints against the wet signature law, do they relate to the first or the 14th Amendments and or the Civil Rights Act of 1964? Yeah, and I mentioned that earlier. I probably just glossed over too quickly, but that's exactly right. That what Vote.org is saying is that these this wet ink signature 
uh, law is in violation of the First and Fourteenth Amendments and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, for which we would very quickly need to get a constitutional lawyer in here to go into the depths and breadths of why that's the case. But suffice it on its face that really it's the issue here of, bur- of overly burdensome requirements. Gotcha. All right, let's move on. From the democracy docket, Arizona Republicans introduced bills to repeal mail-in and early voting. A Minnesota judge dismissed a lawsuit seeking to ban electronic voting machines in the state. The suit was filed by a nonprofit organization founded by a failed GOP congressional candidate. Gregory Miller, what is your take on this? More nonsense, quite candidly. And that's the reason that the judge dismissed the lawsuit, frankly. This is this ongoing issue with election deniers that any machinery involved in the process of administering an election is bad. It can be hacked, tampered, and rigged, and therefore it should not be used at all. We have successfully been using counting machines for ever since the introduction of the Help America Vote Act in 2002. This is just another move by folks who are attempting to say the machines are the problem, not my failed campaign. I think the only newsworthy point of looking at this one is that we're seeing these things happen and we're going to continue to see them happen. And they're largely nonsense. What specific information did the plaintiffs request in the lawsuit and how did they argue that the defendant violated Minnesota law by failing to provide it? Gosh, you're going to stump me on that one because I don't recall exactly what their claim was. I was struck by the story just that, again, you're having failed candidates trying to say, let's blame the machinery. So you stumped the chump on that one. (laughs) From the Democracy Docket, Minnesota Rice County voting machines challenge Benda for Common Sense v. Anderson. Maricopa County recorder Stephen Ricker renounced his plan to speed up election results in Arizona, which includes requiring mail-in ballots to be returned four days before Election Day, expanding the early voting period and more. Why should we be aware of his plan? And the reason this story is interesting is getting it from both sides. He's getting the pressure to increase the ease, convenience, and flexibility of casting ballots, while at the same time receiving enormous pressure from people to get results faster, right? So the principal thing that Richard wants to do here is end this late early ballot. That oxymoron simply means those early ballots that are, were mailed by voters dropped off at the polling places on or in the days immediately before election day. Those are called late early ballots. Richard thinks that the simplest solution here to meeting the demands of an impatient public and media demanding results reporting is a 5 p.m. deadline on the Friday before election day, which the four days, as you mentioned, to return early ballots. The balance For the balance of effort, he wants to expand the period of early voting. So he's giving a quid pro quo here. Not everybody's happy with this, and nobody is ever going to be completely happy with anything that gets done here. The question is, how does he deal with the competing pressures between those who are demanding a faster turnaround on results and those who are, I think, rightfully demanding the ease and convenience of the early submission or late early ballots, if you will. I will say that I think there's a there's going to be room for chaos, depending on how that boils out, because I think a lot of people will expect that it's still the rule that you can get that ballot in on election day. And when they find out that, no, you're four days too late, I think there's going to be a lot of unhappy people. Greg, remind us, what are the challenges facing Maricopa County in counting early ballots and providing timely election results? 
I think the challenge here, if I get the tenor of your question correctly, Royfield, is that today there are rules and regulations about when they can start counting those ballots as they come in from the mail-in or absentee voters, if you will. If you push the deadline for that later, then that assuredly means that you're not going to get the results coming in sooner. Remember the problem that we've seen in the last two election cycles where Early on, one party seems to be in the lead and have the favor, and that's because the mail-in ballots haven't begun to be counted. So if folks on the center-right tend to want to go in person on election day, those that are getting counted rapidly that evening, it looks like they have a lead, and that's because they haven't begun to process the mail-in ballots yet. And so the results change and they open the opportunity for people to say that there's something wrong here, right? That there's ballot stuffing going on or other kinds of mishigosh when there isn't. So Richard here is trying to balance the needs of both sides, those who want results, those who want convenience, because the challenge right now is that if those ballots come in late 5 p.m. of election evening, they may not be able to get results out for a couple of days. And a lot of people don't like that. From NPR, an Arizona official has a plan to speed up election results. Not everyone is on board. On the heel of the Arizona appellant court rejection on January the 19th, Arizona Republicans introduced at least four new proposals to seriously curtail or fully repeal mail-in votings in the Grand Canyon state. These bills come on the heels of the state's highest court rejecting the Arizona Republican Party's latest attempt to undo the state's popular mail-in voting system. This might sound like a super simple question, but why do Republicans in Arizona want to do away with mail-in voting? I could be cynical and say it's because they believe it favors Democrats. In fact, that's not true. By mail voting favors senior citizens, many of whom are Republican. I, I, this has been something that's been happening around the country for a considerable amount of time. And I think the newsworthiness of this to me was to look at the ways that four pieces of legislation are trying to do that and the crazy links that people are going to try to curtail because they can't get rid of it. They've seen that on attempt after attempt, appellate courts are rejecting them because look, mail-in voting has been around for a long time in that state and it's worked quite well for them. So now they're trying to, they're trying to chip away at it, right? So they've got a, they have a bill 2096 that will shorten the time available to return the mail-in ballots. So currently, those ballots have to be in by 7 p.m. on Election Day. But under 2096, the deadline would remain the same for ballots returned to the U.S. Postal Service. But all ballots that were returned to the vote centers and the election offices and the drop boxes, those would have to be in by 5 p.m. on the Friday before the Election Day, as we discussed a, few, a moment ago about Richard's proposal. I think that's not going to make it. There's another bill that would reinstate a short list of excuses to vote by mail. This one's a great one. The only voters under this bill that would be qualified to vote by mail would be those who are physically unable to go to the polls for one of three reasons, illness, age, or literally the physical absence from the state. Um, I think it's too restrictive. There's another bill that said that would require everyone to vote on election day with paper ballots. Okay, we like paper. It's a great idea. But the bill would also ban the use of tabulating machines. In other words, all ballots would have to be hand counted, which is, it's just not feasible. And that's worthy of another podcast conversation 
as why, but I will call our listeners back to the podcast rules because we had an earlier episode where we, where one of our experts at OSET, Jenya Coulter, discussed the challenges of hand counts. Finally, there's a uh, there's another bill that would just end vote by mail, except for military or, or voters who are temporarily outside the United States. The text of the bill is the cleanest, simplest bill I've ever seen. It's eight words. Voting by mail is banned in this state, period. So those are the links that these folks are going for because they don't want vote by mail, because they have some misguided belief that it is somehow favoring one party over the other. This episode of Dead Men Don't Vote is made possible in part by the Verified Voting Foundation. The foundation strengthens democracy for all voters by promoting responsible use of technology in elections. Verified Voting works with election officials, policymakers, and democracy defenders across party lines to support public confidence in elections. Learn more at www.verifiedvoting.org. From the Democracy Docket, the Independent State Legislature Theory. Invoking the fringe independent state legislature theory, failed American gubernatorial candidate Dan Cox asked the U.S. Supreme Court to review a decision from the Maryland Supreme Court that permitted local boards to start counting returned mail-in ballots before Election Day last year to mitigate delays. Why should we be aware of this review and does it have any wider significance, Greg? Yeah, this is a big deal. And this is the one that really I wanted to chew on this one here. Attorney General Frosch filed a lawsuit seeking emergency relief to allow officials to begin counting mail-in ballots starting on October 1st. The current law forbids such until 8 a.m. following Election Day. It's the only state that does that. This causes a host of issues that impacted the entire process through to certification. It's a bummer for the impatient amongst us who are demanding instant results. You've heard this theme before. It was similar to an action, by the way, that was taken in 2020 for the same reason, and they did it then. And that was due to the pandemic when so many people were casting their ballots by mail. Now, the losing gubernatorial candidate, Dan Cox, Republican, intervened, arguing that the court had no authority under this radical independent state legislature theory, which I'm going to give you a good summary on in a second, because it's important to understand what that means. Now, the court granted the change, of course, to allow them to start counting, Cox appealed it. The Maryland support Supreme Court upheld it. And Cox appealed that to the Supreme Court of the United States on the 4th of January. So this case, as best I can tell, is going to be merged with the North Carolina case to be heard this year, Morvey Harper, which is a case that has impact implications on elections of the magnitude of overturning Roe v. Wade to try to draw a comparison. How big is the Morvey Harper case? It is to elections what, what the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the Dobbs case, was to a woman's right to the choices over her own reproductive health. This is literally, Royfield, a case that could upend American electoral process as we know it. So let me give you the real simple of it, the best I can, because it, it is complicated. It is complicated. And the problem is it's a theory. So the independent state legislature theory is an ultra-conservative constitutional theory about who has the power to set rules for federal elections. Now, it's based on an alternative interpretation of two clauses of the U.S. Constitution. The first, Article 1, the, ele election, the election clause of Article 1, states that the time, place, 
times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, unless Congress issues its own rules. Similarly, Article 2 directs that each state will appoint, in such a manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors to select the president. Now, here's the problem. The ISL theory interprets the word legislature in both of these clauses to mean that the state legislature and only the state legislature can make the laws regulating federal elections. Now, this differs starkly from the standard interpretation in which the word legislature is taken to mean the state's general lawmaking process. Let's be really clear on this. The conservative or strict, overly strict constructionist view is that legislature literally means the chamber, the state legislature. It is commonly settled that the word legislature refers to the general lawmaking process. Now, that general lawmaking process includes the governor's veto, citizen-led ballot measures, and rulings of state courts. Now, excluding all other parts of the state government, the theory would also would allow the state legislature to set the election rules and things like congressional maps in an unchecked manner, not by the, with no influence over or weigh in by the governor, the courts, the people, or even the state constitution itself. While the ISL theory does not currently carry any binding weight as precedent in legal decisions, okay, that this is it's not a thing. It keeps surfacing in the writings of Supreme Court justices, and that's why we have to be concerned. In the seminal case Bush v. Gore, which was the lawsuit in which the Supreme Court determined when counting could start and stop in Florida and ultimately award the presidency to Bush, Chief Justice William Rehnquist, joined by then Justice Scalia and Clarence Thomas, wrote that there are, quote, few a few exceptional cases in which the Constitution imposes a duty or confers a power on the state legislature. And federal elections are one of them. So it's a big deal because if the Supreme Court were to say that ISL isn't just a theory and a good idea, it's now the law, that in other words, the definition of legislature is narrowly that body of state assembly members and senators, and they alone get to control how an entire election is run. Think about this, Royfield. Technically, they could decide that they're going to set aside the popular vote of their state and send their own slate of electors for the January 6th certification. That could happen. As far as I'm concerned, it's a twisted interpretation. And that's why this deal is so big. And so this case basically is riding on the coattails of this larger case of Moore v. Harper. And I think we're all going to be white-knuckled watching this because, kid you not, when I say, in my humble opinion, your mileage may vary, see your legal counsel for details. This case to the process of American democracy is of the magnitude of the Dobbs case in Roe v. Wade. Thank you for letting me spew on about that, because that's why this article caught my eye and caught other people's eyes, and we thought our audience would like to hear about it. From the Democracy Docket, Florida Republican introduces proposal to allow recalls of election officials. A Florida state representative introduced 
and proposed an amendment that would allow Florida voters to recall all elected county officials in the state, including supervisors of elections. These election officials could become subject to frivolous recalls for merely doing their jobs in a climate that is already rife with increased threats and harassment. Greg, is there a good chance that this bill will pass in Florida? Yes, there's not there is a not insignificant chance that this could find its way into the books. And I spared you a tirade from Jenya had she been on here to answer this question. Uh, she would have torn into it the way I tore into the independence legislature theory. Look, this is just causing chaos amongst a badly berated and beaten down profession of election administration. Stuff like this just ensures that even fewer qualified officials are going to remain on the job. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to take a job where that risk is going to be hanging, lording over my head. It's the same way of trying to criminalize certain conduct of election administrators. At one level, it's nonsense. Another level, it's a very serious threat, again, to the operational continuity and stability of our democracy administration processes. And we should be alarmed by motions like this, and we should stay pay attention to them because this is just not healthy for our democracy. Just last question on this. Do you know how current Florida state law handles the recall of elected county officials? Yeah, that's a really good question. And no, because I do not practice law in the state of Florida or any state at this point. I am not familiar. We have government relations team that get to the bottom of that quickly. Jenny could probably tell you in a flash. That's something we ought to maybe follow up on in, in a subsequent episode someplace because I think it's a good question is to understand how would such a recall work. My guess is, if I'm going to take an educated guess at this, it's going to be a mechanism of recall like other recall mechanisms, right? So there'll be a petition for recall, then there'll be a hearing, et cetera. It won't be like a impeachment. This would allow voters to decide that they don't like their own elections officials, and there would be a petition process. And like any recall petition process throughout the country, typically used for elected officials, like recall the governor of California back in the Arnie Schwarzenegger days. And that's what's going on here. The specifics of it, regulatory structure, I don't know, but I have to assume that it is going to be like any other recall petition for any other public official. Gotcha. Gregor Miller, thank you for coming on to Dead Men Don't Vote and providing us some answers to this week's burning topics and questions in the realm of election administration. Hey, my pleasure. I think week to week, we're always we're going to see stories even in an off election year. And I'm glad that, uh, that these stories were the ones that made it to the top of the pile for examination, because I think they do represent some important concepts about what's going on around the country. Although we're all taking a breather, from an election cycle, there are others who are not taking a breath whatsoever. They are pushing ahead to do things that appear to not help the ease and convenience of our civic duty and our civil right. Thank you. To get a message to the OSET team via SpeakPipe, go to trustthevote.org forward slash podcast where you can record your question and we will put it on a future episode and answer it. And don't forget, good people, citizens of america we need your reviews please go to apple Podcasts and post us a review the more reviews we get it widens our scope of informing americans about american democracy and elections and again if you found a news story that you would like us to comment on you can email me at royfield at org. 
Please keep listening and spread the word about us and the Trust the Vote project. And of course, spread the good news about democracy. You can go to trustthevote.org forward slash podcast or you can follow us on Twitter at Trust the Vote or at Dead Men Don't Vote. Dead Men Don't Vote is supported by the team at the Trust the Vote project. The Trust the Vote project is an initiative of the OSIT Institute, Inc., a tax-exempt 501c3 non-profit California Public Benefit Corporation.